Brian Taylor went agonisingly close to playing in grand finals for both Richmond and Collingwood. Finally, now deep into his 50s, he is going to have an active role in a grand final as a senior commentator for the Channel 7 commentary team. Welcome, Brian. Thank you, Michael. I haven't actually been selected yet, so we, we're not <laughs> sure of that grand final appearance. That's unusual humility for you, Brian. <laughs> At the start of the year, it was committee out, Taylor in. It was a big change in the media landscape, wasn't it? It was, but it was just a great honour. I mean, to be sitting alongside Bruce McAvaney was just an absolute dream of any caller, I'm sure, you know, one of the greatest callers in the world. How do you think you've performed? Uh, just average so <laughs> far. Just doing my job, Mike, and trying to call the <laughs> footy in the best possible way that I can. Self-assessment's difficult, I know that, but mm. you put your head down on the pillow after a game over the season. You're happy with your work? Yeah, from a professional point of view, I am, but there are always things. Every time I finish calling a game, I have a chat to my producer and I say, only if I'd done that or only if I'd described that moment a little differently or used a different word to describe that particular person. That particular... So there's always those little things. You know, as a commentator, I don't reckon there's ever a perfect game. No. Do you go to Twitter after a game? <laughs> wow. I used to a lot. My wife, Tanya, has said to me, you stay away from Twitter. But I do have a sneaky look. <laughs> look, Twitter can be a ferocious medium and you can get, get be, be cruel there. But you can also pick up great information. So during a game, for instance, someone might give a stat or we might say something about a particular player that's not quite right. And bang, on Twitter, there's the real answer. So you can use it as a tool. Uh, as well, but it is dangerous to look at it. But what about when people are calling you a tool? Yeah, well, that happens all the time. And, I, you know, I know I can't please everyone, and uh, that's probably one of the reasons. There are, I'm sure, football callers all around the country that have probably been sworn off Twitter because they don't want to uh, discourage themselves and feel bad about themselves because there's an enormous amount of bullying that goes on. Hmm. When the Herald Sun did a survey of football supporters this year... Mm -hmm. They had Brian Taylor as the most annoying commentator in the view of the majority of supporters. What did you think of that? Well, that's exactly what I get voted when I go home every night, Mike. <laughs> that's the family's vote every time I go home. So that's not unusual for me. You know what? I've, I have learnt, and having spoken to Bruce and other commentators about this, Dwayne Russell and all those sort of guys, you just can't please everyone. You know, you might... If you're, if you're really good at your game and at the top of your game... You might please 30% of the audience, 30% uh, aren't sure and 30% don't like you. That's a pretty good result for a commentator. It's a hard thing to do to please everyone because sure. you, know, you and I both know it's an incredibly subjective game. Mm. But you haven't changed your style and, and, and credit to you. I mean, I think the criticism largely has been unfair on you and I like the theatre and, and your advice to blokes when they're kicking for goal and stuff like that. But the criticism hasn't moved you to modify your style, has it? Well, I, I can't be anybody else because I'm, I'm no good at that. I, I've just got to be me and, and stay true to the things that uh, have helped me along the way. I'm, I'm, I'm an emotional caller, so what the game gives, I, I give in accordance with it. I don't go with a lot of pre-planned ideas about what I want to say or even a lot of stats that I want to get out in the, in, in the game. I go with my emotion. Hopefully the game's going to be a ripper. And sometimes I get accused of barracking for a team. Mm. But you will notice it's always the team coming second. Because if they're four goals behind, I want Sydney yep. to kick the four goals, get close, so we have a great finish. That's why I'm barracking. Let me remind you with this little package, BT, of, of your calling and see what you think of it. A razzy old fan 
Fantasia off the deck. Watson goes forward. Orazio Fantasia. Tiffin Woody. Little quick handball over the top. Lewinberger. Orazio Fantasia. Bangs it long. McDonald Tiffin Woody. Fantasia. Orazio Fantasia. Kick on the way. The package has delivered. Stringer's going to go on and kick it on the one. The package. Stringer has kicked four goals. Boy, has he delivered in the last quarter. He's kicked three of them and personally has busted this game to pieces. And now Roughhead. That, 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 that was out of bounds. That was out of bounds. That was out of bounds. That was out of bounds as Shields goals. Boy. Oh, boy. It was, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> well, the bloke calling the game, Tommy, was yeah. four times. How do you feel when you see that? I mean, we've packaged that up to prove the point about Fantasia mm -hmm. and, and Stringer. Look, I reckon the game hasn't got enough personalities in it. So if if you could, you know, all those guys aren't the greatest players, but they're, they're players that have got X factor, and that's what I really like in a player—a player that, you know, sometimes he'll disappoint, sometimes he'll just be okay, but sometimes he'll win the game off his own boot. That sort of inspires me as a commentator because you never know when it's going to happen, so you're always on edge. It's funny with the Orazio Fantasia thing. I went mm. to a school. Where did that come from? Not sure. I went to a school the other day, a year 11 and 12 kids, and all I wanted to talk about was Orazio Fantasia. And I'm thinking, why? It's, you know, it's just a name. Because but, it was you. Yeah, I, I, I don't quite understand why, but you know, I just loved the era that I played in where there were personalities of the game, whether it was Bruce Duell who said nothing, but even mm. that was great personality, or whether it was another player that was outspoken. And I think if we can instil a little bit of that into our call, not let it override the call, then it's good for the game. You know, the package thing, you know, the Jake Stringer, this is a guy that can turn a game off his own boot. And yeah, he's had a lot of, a lot of ordinary games, but he's won some off his own boot as well. But you might have put a weight on Stringer's back. I mean, oh, almost... No, I mean, look, he, he's never lived up to that. You christened him the package, did you not? Well, yeah, yeah. We, we as a team at Seven did. <laughs> you did. He's never lived up to that, has he? Yes, he has. He's had some great games. You guys ride him too hard. Jake Stringer is a 12 to 15 possession a game man. He's not a 30 possession mm. game man, number one. He's a guy that one week will kick you none, but the next week he'll kick you three. He's a guy that needs to be playing on the third or fourth best forward, and he's a uh, defender, sorry, and he's hardly had that because they haven't had their best forward line on the ground over the last two years, hardly at any stage. OK. The Italians would say that you get Fantasia's name wrong. It's a softer Z sound. How should it be? Orazio, not Orazio. I don't say Orazio. Give it, give it to me. Tell me. Orazio Fantasia. Mm. OK. Did you Is that it? <laughs> or not? No, it goes up a few octaves when you're on the All telly. Right. Did you model your uh, calling style on anyone? Um, all, all people. Um, Rex Hunt used to love. Rex revolutionised mm. football calling and made it in a bit more theatre to go with it. Um, and so a little piece of that, a little piece of McAvaney, the moment, a little, a, a little piece of Dennis in, in being prepared for the right words to sum up the right moment. 
and it's a hard thing to do. So I, I would say that I've taken a piece of a lot of people. Do you have a confidant, a mentor? Probably have a few of them, but I talk regularly to Eddie Maguire. You know, he gave me an opportunity at Triple M footy early on, but also he's got a... Who, who, who has got a better understanding of all parts media, particularly football and sport? So Eddie and I have had some earnest conversations, uh, some funny conversations, depending on why I'm... I'm ringing. I, I will ring Eddie probably four or five times a year and if I've done something wrong or he thinks I need some advice or he's not liking what he's seen, he won't hesitate to ring me and say, I think you should change that. Roaming Brian mm. caused a lot of discussion. Uh, I know Channel 7 love it. You, do you enjoy it? Uh, it's tricky because it all depends on the welcome you get. You know, some footy clubs have liked doing it. Some have done it reluctantly. And some didn't want to do it at all. And you can feel that. As soon as you go down there, I can feel whether the players, their partners and families and doctors and physios are into it or whether they're just doing it because they've been told that they have to do it. So it's, it, it, it is a little bit of a tricky one. But I love it because, you know what, I don't know what's going to happen. Mm. I honestly don't know what's going to happen. I'm waiting for me to stuff it up. It could happen at any time. Are you directed? I mean, are you, do you go to a target that someone says in your ear, go to whomever, or do you just float until you see someone and say, I want him? The first interview is normally teed up. We know who the first one we're going to is, and then after that, it's just a matter of finding the next. If I have trouble, I've got an earpiece where the producer will simply say, you know, um, Buddy Franklin's over your left shoulder about five metres away. Up to me if I want to go and get him. I don't have to. But I think the other thing is, it's not about me interviewing the players or about what I say or... Perhaps even what they say, depending on what's happened in the game. It's about the cameras going for a walk with you and seeing all of the stuff they don't normally see. Because normally in an after-game interview, it's the player with an advertising um, thing behind his back. Well, you as a viewer, while that's what we've been forced to do over the last 20 years, I personally don't want to do that. that that's not my go. And so I want to take the viewers on a, on a walk through the rooms. When uh, you were on one night uh, on Roaming Brian and there were tweets going across the screen, mm -hmm. Channel 7 putting up these... Which I don't see. We, we ..putting up tweets that were disparaging towards you. Were they? Mm -hmm. And you know that because we spoke about this a week ago. <laughs> were you offended by that? Not at all. Because it's people's right to say what they think about a particular segment or what I've done or what the players said in response. So I'm happy for any feedback. You know, this, that little sort of segment is very much a work in progress. So any feedback we get is fantastic because we're yet to nail that particular segment. So to have people um, uh, talking negatively of it, I'm fine with that. Mike, I'm sure you've done... You know done... how precious I am. Yeah, well, yeah. you are. But <laughs> I'm sure you've done things that you go, well, you know, I got that wrong, but... You know, that's OK. It's all right for people to be negative about things because you'll never please everyone. Let's go back on the field. Mm. 1982. Oh, did I play? Yes, you played. <laughs> and I told you we'd get to that. And you were a very good player, without the bad knees. I was an average player, Mike. I'll give you a stat later that'll disprove that. Oh. 1982 grand final. Mm -hmm. You could well have played in the Richmond team that lost to Carlton. In fact, my memory is that you ran out on the ground with the Tigers and then ran off and went wherever you went. Tell us what the, the lead-up to that. Yeah, it was interesting because in the last game of 1982, Richmond had, had a great year, and a very good friend of mine, Steve Perry, and myself, both in the last round of the year, hurt our knees. 
Steve did an ACL. He was our full back and was going to be that through the final series. I was the full forward and I'd kicked, you know, 70 odd goals in that particular year. So I was having a reasonable year as well. Both done our knees, both missed the finals in between. And there was uh, Richmond, I think, won the second There was semi. only one final for Richmond. Yeah. The second semi. Second semi and then straight in the grand final. <clears throat> yep. So they had a week off prelim final week. We played a practice game at Punt Road, just a half. I played on Alan Martello, who was the full-back in the, in the 82 grand final side. And uh, I kicked a few goals with five or, five or so, Mike, in that half a footy. Thought I'd proved my fitness, given that I'd had a good year and I'd appeared to have gotten over this knee injury. Anyway, I, I wasn't selected. I was told my parents had come over from Western Australia, my whole family had come over, wasn't allowed to tell anyone, didn't find out till Thursday of the grand final anyway. And, um, and to then, on, on the Thursday night, to have to go and tell the family that they'd come for, for no good reason because I wasn't actually going to play was, was a bit heartbreaking. And then Francis Burke, who was our coach at the time, said, thought it would be a good idea if I ran out with the team to try and keep them guessing till the last minute. So were you named? Um, I can't remember whether I was named. Well, you, you probably... Would, I you think I been, was. Yeah. I think I was yeah. named, um, but always knowing that I wasn't actually playing. Gee, that's a bit of pill for a 20-year-old to swallow, isn't it? Yeah, it is. But you know what? As a 20-year-old in a great club like Richmond who'd just come off this extraordinary period in the 70s and, and even in 1980, you think, ah, oh, the next grand final at Richmond is just around the corner. Well, guess what? They haven't been one. Mm. They haven't been in one since. No, correct. And as players at Richmond, we thought we were always going to play finals because they were such a great club at the time. So you ran onto the ground and then was recalled, or you came off... Um, before the bounce, obviously. What did you do then? I went and sat in the stands. It was, it was raining on that particular day and I sat in the third tier of the northern stand and, uh, and watched the game of footy. It was unbelievable. One minute I was down on the ground mm. and about 15 minutes later I was sitting up in the stand getting wet because it was a light, drizzly mm. rain on that day from memory. Even in 1980 you were a chance, weren't you? I spoke to Tony Jewell during the week. David Cloak had a heel problem. Mm -hmm. Ended up playing, but had he not played, you would have played in the 1980 Premiership team. Yeah, I, look, 1980 was the, my first year, mm. basically, and I'd played in round 18 my very first game of football against Carlton. And I guess the fact I'd played late in the season gave me some chance of being involved in the finals campaign, but it was only ever if someone was going to be injured. Yeah. I was at that game at Princess Park and you played on a bloke called Bruce Dool. I did. And I think you had three possessions. I think you're right. <laughs> yeah. He absolutely carved me up, like... I learnt so much from that game. I played on the half-forward flank, can you believe it? He was mm. the best half-back probably ever. I think he's in Carlton's team of the century as the half-back. He's in the team of the, the century. The team of the yeah, century. Yeah. He was just a brilliant player. I had uh, two handballs and one kick mm. for the day and uh, it wasn't the greatest debut in football. I learnt a lot. He was unbelievable. Only 40 games, 40-odd 40 games at Richmond mm. and then off to Collingwood. Yep. Did you were hot at Collingwood. Collingwood was a great time, yeah. yeah. Joined them in 1985. Yep. Bob Rose was the coach. He was just a, a great human being, great coach, great guy, and really welcomed me into the club. Collingwood didn't have a forward at the time. That was why I went. actually went for the money factor was just not even an issue. It was for the opportunity to play at Collingwood as their full forward because Richmond were happy with Roach. And so that was the way it was. So it was, it was great. And then, of course, Lee Matthews taking over early in 86 as well. Um, you know, to be coached by those two guys was uh, something I treasure. 86, 100 goals, the common medal. Mm -hmm. You averaged five goals a game that year. Did I? Yeah. 
That's nice. <laughs> See, I spend my time in, time in record books, mate. But no, that's that's a, a great achievement, that isn't it? Yeah, look, kick 100 goals in a year well, was... five a game is, is the relevant figure. Yeah, it was a bit, norm, bit, bit of the norm in those days. There were so many great full forwards around and coming off the era of McKenna and Hudson and, and Wade and these sort of guys as well, it, was, it, was, it really was a bit of the norm. To kick 100 goals was not an unusual thing. Um, to do it at Collingwood was a little bit unusual. McKenna was obviously the previous one to me. There only been four that had kicked 100. So um, it, it was a great time. I enjoyed it. I felt that when I was on, I was hard to beat in 1986. And, uh, and, uh, I enjoyed, but we didn't have the team success that we required. It's fair to say that you flirt with danger, I reckon, when you're in the commentary box or you on your tweets. Well, there's one famous one. when you What did you call Harry Taylor one day in 2014? I can't remember. Well, you called him a poofter. I think I said something like it was a poofy wave or something like Did that. Did you? Yeah, and mm. it's something I shouldn't have said. Mm. It was uh, offensive to, not to Harry, I rang him straight away. You did, But yeah. it, was, it offended other people. Yeah. And out of the counselling I had out of that, that's what I learnt, you know, that it's not so much and always the subject, it's other people out there that might be offended by the comment you made. I've got a gay brother myself, so... I haven't got a homophobic oh, no. bone in my body. And I wouldn't accuse you of that, but you said something that's now seen to be politically incorrect. Yeah. That's all. Yeah. And, and I think you're a victim of the, that swing to political correctness, yeah. do you? And, and made a mistake and under a very understanding of the mistake I mm -hmm. made and uh, sought the help, got the help, realised what I'd done and, uh, you know, won't make a mistake again. Political correctness is a really... A really hard thing because you've got to check every word you mm. say, especially on the spur of a moment when you're calling a game of footy and things are happening so quickly. Um, you just you just got to be so careful about what you say today. Interesting life for you in football, isn't it? It's um, well, this is the thing. You can you've just got to be so careful with what you say um, because there are so many people out there waiting to be offended. Mm. Um, waiting for you? Do you think people want to see you stuff up? Absolutely, they do, and and I will. And I will, and I, I, I will never get it 100% right. Um, but I'm always striving to, to, to get it as right as I can possibly be. You were quite animated, Brian, as a player, mm -hmm. weren't you? Yeah, I was. Antics that probably wouldn't have been tolerated today, and I, was, I wonder whether Lee Matthews was prepared to tolerate them at Collingwood. Probably not in the overall picture of things. So he knew he had to work with what he had at the start in '86. And probably as we were pushing towards the Premiership in 90, he was starting to iron out the little things that perhaps he didn't agree with. And maybe the antics that I showed in that period, maybe that was one of the things that he didn't, didn't agree with. Were they contrived or not? Uh, no, I, I felt that uh, getting myself into an aggressive frame of mind was, was something that helped me play footy. You know, Full Forge probably historically, Mike, had, had been, um, you know had this label of not being so tough at the footy and, uh, you know, a little bit skirting around the edges, you know, a little bit flighty and a little <laughs> bit uh, non-committal. That wasn't you. Uh, that's not something I wanted no. to do. I wanted to buck the trend and I wanted to be a bit more involved aggressively. And so those little skirmishes off to the side sort of, in a way, helped motivate me uh, by getting me into the game. What's the dumbest thing you did on the ground? Um, uh, be rude to umpires, you know. You remember, when you, you remember when you had that famous picture of you with the ball in hand as if you are about to throw it? Mm. Was that at an umpire? I think so. <laughs> but that, 
I'm not saying I'm not saying condone that behaviour, but um, you know that was what happened in, in in those sort of times. He knew that I didn't mean it. I knew that I didn't mean it, but I was a very picture told a different story. Very emotional player. When I look at that, I'm you know my kids see it and they go, oh, Dad, you're, you're an absolute imbecile. Why would you do such a thing? Uh, it just shows you how much community standards have changed mm. since mm. then. 1990, Brian, mm -hmm. Collingwood were to end its premiership drought that year. You played in the first qualifying final, which was a draw with West Coast at Waverley. Yep. You kicked the last two goals for Collingwood, mm -hmm. which enabled them to draw, obviously, and that was the last we saw of you. Yeah, I, I'm, I didn't have a great game on that day, but in that particular game, West Coast, I got a fair bit of the footy in the first quarter. I think I missed four or five shots in the first quarter and then got taken off the ground, never came on until towards the end and was lucky enough to kick a couple. But it was interesting because a week before, before the final series had started, Lee Matthews and Gubby Allen had come to me and said, look, we've decided we're going to play you at the MCG, but we're not going to play you at Waverley. We think Waverley's too expansive and perhaps you'll get found out there you're more suited to the roundness and the mm. tightness of the MCG. Well, they did exactly the opposite. They played me at Waverley and didn't play me at the MCG. So I'm not sure what happened. I'm still confused today. But in the end, you know, my form wasn't quite there and I, uh, and I didn't deserve a game in, in, in the 1990 Premiership. So you copped that OK? Yeah, yep. th that's the way it is. It's, uh, you know, gee, once again you think at Collingwood you're going to play another grand final, it doesn't matter, I'll get an opportunity. But but didn't happen. But you had to cop it. What else could you do? Mm. Did you ever speak to Lee about it? Yeah, we, we've spoken as briefly as, you know, a few months ago about yeah. it. And I always, uh, you know, take the piss out of him a little bit about <laughs> it and ask him why. And he says, oh... You just weren't good enough. Yeah, yeah. You know? well, he's very matter-of-fact, yeah, isn't he? absolutely. Yeah. He says, oh, no, it had nothing to do with the things that were going on around the, around the perimeter. It was, we thought you weren't hmm. good enough to play. So you don't feel cheated about being so close, certainly twice and maybe three times, and never getting to one? In the overall sense, we play to play in premierships. That's mm. why we play. So in the overall sense, I, I feel saddened that I didn't reach the ultimate. But in the terms of the bigger picture in life... It's water off a duck's back. I mean, I've moved on. There are other things. I've got a great family, four kids. The bigger picture is is much more important to me. When you went to Collingwood, you made Richmond pay, didn't you? It seemed like it was sort of you. Yeah, were... I love playing Tigers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you got bags against them then. But yeah. There was, no, there was nothing... Personal's not the word, but it wasn't because it was the Tigers. It was just the way it panned out. Yeah, just the way it panned out. Just the, the defenders that they had at that particular time I felt comfortable on. Love playing. There was a little bit of motivation, knowing the fact they didn't really let me go. I think they wanted me to stay, but um, there was a there was definitely a motivation in, in wanting to beat the Tigers. That is for sure. They actually came to me two years after I left Richmond and tried to recruit me back. Did to, they? I remember that I was working at this plumbing place in Richmond, and Gold Rolls Royce turned up to pick me up and take me to this hotel. It was Johnny Robinson, the then mm. chairman of Selectors, whispering into the Sofitel Hotel up to this private suite upstairs. I walk in, I'm thinking, who's going to be here? And it was Alan Bond and Craig Bond who were in control of the club at that particular time. And we had a good lunch and uh, they let me walk out of the room and in the end they said to me, I'd said, no, look, I, you know, I can't do it, I'm happy at Collingwood where I am. And just as I walked out the door, Craig Bond said to me, I remember him, he had a blank cheque and he said to me, you fill it in. Wow. And, um, and, I, and I just couldn't. You know, I was happy at Collingwood and, you know, I was... Um, I was happy where I was and I just couldn't go back. 
The blank check. Even though the Tigers was, you know, like, they were my family. You know, I came over as a 16-year-old kid. And, uh, you know, they looked after me all of that time. It was a great, great time. They weren't known as great payers. When you were a 16-year-old and they were trying to lure you across the country, what did they offer you? Oh, I can't remember what it was, but it was... You know, I was I had a job as a mechanical fitter at a bauxite mine in Western Australia. Mm. That's where I was heading. So mm. anything was better than that. And so they said, what do you want to do? And, you know, boy, in the country, you don't aspire to great heights. And I said, look, I want to be a plumber. So they got me a plumbing apprenticeship in Paran, and I did it with a former Richmond player, and Kevin Sheedy helped me, and I uh, stayed with Kevin for a while. So so they really, they really looked after me. They were fantastic. Kicking for goal, BT, mm-hmm. and I acknowledge this, you were a good kick, and you, you are prepared to give your advice in the commentary. Uh, what do you think of the, st- the, the general, generally speaking, the way the full forwards kick for goals is, or any, any of the blokes playing forward? I think they've moved on, and I think they're doing a lot of things with goal kicking that are better than we ever did. So the, the very difficult shot from the boundary line, mm-hmm. they're making it look very, very easy with, you know, the banana with the traction of the ball along the ground, bending it on the ground and all that sort of thing. So in a lot of ways, they're making it look better. Perhaps the set shot directly in front, 35 metres out, is the one that you're talking about that that hasn't got better. It it, it absolutely stuns me. I was at Collingwood a few years ago helping out with some kicking down there and I remember Mick Malthouse was there at the time and I I said, look, Mick, I need to get hold of a couple of your players and we'll do some, you know, perhaps two 30-minute sessions per week. You you, you volunteered this? Yeah, Yeah. uh, Rocker and these sort of guys. And... um, and he said, look, you, be, you, you need to go and see the head of fitness. <laughs> so I went to see the head of fitness and the fitness said, look, you can, have, you can have seven kicks with him, you can have ten kicks with him and four kicks with him, but only on a Tuesday. And I'm thinking, you've given me the job of trying to get these guys better. How do you expect me to do it with that sort of attitude? These guys need to kick 50... They need to have 50 shots at goal a week. So here they are. They won't take this opportunity of some real the real possibility of improving the game, yet they are prepared to send home an oxygen tent for <laughs> Scott Pendlebury's wife to sleep in to gain 0.01 of a percent, but they won't allow you to do the goal kicking that you should be doing. This is where our game is being slightly hijacked by the sports science guys. I think they do a great job preparing the guys. They've been prepared like they've never been prepared before. But they're forgetting about one thing. They're forgetting about the skills of the game and practising those. But aren't you surprised that Mick, Mick, Mick Malthouse, given his status, that he wouldn't have just said to the fitness place, BT's here to teach these folks how to kick? I was flabbergasted. I was absolutely flabbergasted that Mick would give the power to there mm. and there would be no comeback. Whatever he said, that was it, because, because that sports science uh, guru, and he was a gun at Collingwood, mind you, David Butterfin, he's an absolute ripper, uh, and he was really good at preparing players... That was the way that he saw it. It wasn't about the short term. It was about the load on the players for the entire mm, year mm. and what they did for the entire year. It had nothing to do with the week to week. If someone had to kick for your life, BT, who would it be? Oh, gee. Um, ben Dixon, when he was mm. playing at Hawthorne, was nearly unmissable. He was a fantastic kick for goal. What about the other Ben that plays for North Melbourne? Uh, ben Brown, yeah, he's... Uh, Mechanically does everything perfectly. I love Ben Brown. He marks the ball at, at full length of the arms. He kicks textbook, you know, straight run up, straight follow through and understands what his ball is doing in the air. There are players that, I won't mention any names, but there, there are, I went and coached a 250-game veteran at one stage that was moving from back to forward. The first thing I said to him when he came down, he was gonna, knew he was going to be playing forward for a couple of years, so I said, what is your ball 
do naturally in the air on a day where there's no wind? Does it bend left to right or right to left? And he didn't actually know. Mm. And that was stunning to me, 250 games. And so, you know, Ben Brown understands what his ball does once it leaves the boot. And if you don't understand that, how can you possibly aim in the right spot for it to end up between the goals? I can honestly say I enjoy your commentary. I like it. It's lively. It makes the event sometimes seem even more entertaining than it is. It was a better career than a lot of people give you credit for. And I think you were cut down um, by bad knees. And as I said, I enjoy you in the commentary box. And it's great to finally get in front of you, BT. Good on you, Mike. Thank you for having me.